on the court, we like to say that we can disagree without being disagreeable. And it's so important to be able to disagree because, you know, what I find that my, the opinions that I have authored when, you know, panel members have in, in the process of meeting on that opinion, when we have disagreed on some parts of the opinion or some parts of the fact, working through that, working through that disagreement and coming to a place where, ah, this is the right solution. This is the right answer. That is when we can do our best work. And so it's important to have that dialogue. And I think we, we do it really well on the court and the Maryland Appellate Court. Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today we have a guest from the Appellate Court of Maryland, Judge Andrea M. Leahy. Welcome to the program, Judge Leahy. Thank you very much, Mr. Clark. Thank you for having me on your show. It's very exciting to be here. Well, it's a pleasure. And and one of the topics that I intended to talk about was the camaraderie of the court system. And it's something that I don't think is really known to the public. We've had a couple of guests on here who have been special to us. And I mean, I appreciate every single person who's been on in the 106, 107 shows. But uh, I saw that one of your mentors is Judge Lynn Battaglia. And I didn't really know her, but got to know her sort of through inadvertence. And she was just such a wonderful, warm guest. And also somebody who I think was inspirational She was retired from the court because Maryland has a limit to age 70. But of course, she was back in graduate school at Hopkins, like studying public health or something like that. And we were asking what she was doing. And and she just has so much energy and enthusiasm. And I suspect that she imparted some of that to you in the course of her being your mentor. I can never claim that I have the energy or the enthusiasm that Judge Battaglia does, because I think it's boundless. I don't know many people who would launch a whole new career after serving as on the Court of Appeals at age 70, but that's that's Judge Battaglia. So I have just been so fortunate to have her and other women like her as my mentors in my life. I had the privilege of working for Judge Battaglia when she was a U.S. attorney, first female U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland. I remember two occasions. One is when she sat on the Court of Special Appeals as a retired judge, and I was able to sit on a panel with her. And another occasion when I was able to sit on a panel with Judge Irma Raker, my other mentor, and those were just really great days. I had never really envisioned that that would ever happen in my life as when I was younger, but to get to the point where I could sit on a panel in the Court of Special Appeals with these two great women was just really a wonderful, two occasions in my life. Both of them very exciting. I have tried cases in front of Judge Raker when she was in Montgomery County eons ago and always find her fair-minded, at least towards me, which I appreciated. Not everybody seems to indulge me in that, but uh, it's it's neat. I know you're also friends with Justice now, Michelle Houghton, whom I have known for eons and has been on the show also several times. I don't think the public appreciates that judges have friends on the court and get along well. And 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 I don't know, I, I guess courtrooms seem like such a com, you know competitive enterprise that it's it's a beautiful thing when you hear 
that that people care about each other and that they're interested in each other outside of the law. And, and it sounds as though that has very much been your experience. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I'll start by um, addressing the camaraderie that we have on our court. And then related to that is, um, and going back to some of your opening statements, I think mentoring and mentorship is such an important component of life and a career. I try to emphasize that all the time, wherever I go, especially with my law clerks and others, it's important to find a good mentor and then to be a good mentor. But um, on the court, we like to say that we can disagree without being disagreeable. And it's so important to be able to disagree because, you know, what I find that my, the opinions that I have authored when, you know, panel members have in, in the process of meeting on that opinion, when we have disagreed on some parts of the opinion or some parts of the fact, working through that, working through that disagreement and coming to a place where, ah, this is the right solution. This is the right answer. That is when we can do our best work. And so it's important to have that dialogue. And I think we, we do it really well on the court and the Maryland appellate court. So the name change, any significance to you in that? No, other than I trip up about it every now and then. But, you know, and, and when lawyers do, and in, in, uh, when they argue before us, I try to, you know, make them feel comfortable about it because it takes a while, you know. So I've been calling a court of special appeals, as everybody else has, for decades. An and entire career. So now we're, we're just getting used to it. But I think, I think we're getting there. I've had a number of your colleagues as guests, and and since the change, I've screwed up the name every single time. So I sort of dance around it and hope that you'll utter it, and that way I'm I'm in better better company. So I don't think that our audience really has an understanding. I've explained the appellate processes on numerous occasions, having had guests both federal and, and state court on, and they kind of understand that there's panels, but for example, with the now Supreme Court, the entire Supreme Court sits on a case, and and it's in your court, it's a little bit different. There are panels of three judges, correct? That's correct. But one important thing to point out that I don't think everyone always appreciates or understands is that we sit in panels of three, but when we submit an opinion for reporting, that opinion will come before the entire court. So that opinion, any reported opinion is actually reviewed by the entire court and not just the three-judge panel. Does it ever occur that the three-judge panel thinks one way, whether it's unanimous or split, and that the court as a whole thinks differently? Yes. How often do you think that that happens? I think it's it's rare, but it's happening. Okay. Okay. That's an intriguing development that doesn't occur to me as, as an advocate. So how are the panels chosen? Like, Are you on the same panel with the same group of judges or does it vary all the time? It's a random process, and I think our clerk of the court, uh, Rachel Dabrowski, can tell you she has uh, figured out a very complicated process based on schedules and charts of who's available on what day and who doesn't have conflicts. And so she puts this together uh, with with the help of her team every month, and presto, we have panels. (laughs) You've held a number of positions that have also involved you being an advocate 
there is a perception among many appellate advocates that a given panel is is better for for a particular side or position on any given day. Did you hold that sentiment when you were an advocate? Not really so much. And perhaps that's because I learned a lot about the appellate process when I was Governor Glendening's chief counsel. And I knew the resumes very well of all the people who were appointed before and during and after. And I know that the judges sort of discard their advocacy role when they get to the bench and, and really try to be fair. So I most of my litigation career, well, you know, there was a couple of years before I became chief counsel, of course, about four or five years. But after that, I think through that experience, I really, I didn't have that concern the way I think many advocates do. You know, it's interesting because I've continuously advocated cases for 42 years in one day right now. And I kind of just accept I've got who I've got, whoever the panel is, or whether it's a circuit court judge or a district court judge, and I'm never really troubled, but I do often work with other lawyers and they get all worked up. Oh, this this panel includes a, a former state's attorney or that kind of thing. And then they, they're unable to kind of accept the panel for what it is and do their best job. And they sometimes get caught up in being concerned about what they think will be potential historic biases or prejudices and that sort of thing. Yeah. You have a little bit of an unusual background. One thing is that you are a concert pianist, and I don't know any of the other judges we've had on across the last six years who can make that claim. Did did you grow up in a musical household? I did. And I just want to say I'm not a concert pianist anymore by any means because I don't have the time to practice uh, the hours that it takes. I did grow up in a musical household, but I always had sort of a split interest. Maybe it's because I'm a Gemini. I don't know. But when I went to college, you know, I I originally wanted to be a concert pianist and an advocate for human rights. So I double majored in music and politics. Then eventually I had to pick a career. So I chose law. And, you know, my father was a lawyer and was very influential in that decision, I think. Not because he pressed me, but because of his, it was such a wonderful role model for me. And then during uh, law school, I became very interested in environmental justice, which was an emerging area of law at the time. And I, you know, I had these visions that I would join a big international law firm or NGO. But then I got married between my second and third year of law school. And weeks after I graduated, I had a little girl. So I had to stay home because of course, no one was going to hire someone who at that time was expecting like me. But I, w- I was really happy to spend that year at home with my daughter, even though at the time I thought that my career plans were just completely derailed. But it was actually quite the opposite. So what happened was I got my first full-time job as an attorney in Prince George's County Attorney's Office. And that's where I represented the Department of Environmental Resources. It's also where, you know, I met all these wonderful initial mentors in my life, Judge Hott and um, Judge Tillerson Adams, Judge Boyle and Betty Hewlett, just wonderful, wonderful people who I am so fortunate to still call my very close friends. Anyway, I figured that was a way to learn environmental law, you know, at the local level. And that's also where I realized I learned so much and I learned to appreciate the impact citizens can and do have at the local level. 
that's really where change is most meaningful, you know, at the local level. And then I was uh, very fortunate to be in a position that Governor Glenn Denning became governor of the state of Maryland. He was county executive at the time that I worked in the um, county attorney's office. And he asked me if I would serve as his chief counsel. Wow. It was an amazing opportunity to be a part of his very aggressive, progressive agenda. And I have to, of course, I can't leave my good friend and another mentor out of the story. And that is First Lady Frances Anglin Denning. She, sure. She's just amazing. So I, I've just been so blessed to have these doors open to me at the right time and have so many wonderful mentors. And I try to tell young lawyers you know, don't narrow the scope of your career too much. You may you may miss an opportunity because you're too focused. You may not see a great opportunity. And then just do the best you can in the job that you have and that the job you're in and then doors will open to you. I think that's that's really important. And especially if, you know, things don't go your way, you know, sometimes life gets in the way. My careers change, you know, goals changed when I got married and had a, a daughter, but that's okay because it went in a, in a different, and I think much better direction that I couldn't have even anticipated. So often kids, and I use that you know, loosely, but especially in law school, have these great ambitions that they're going to go work for big, big, and bigger and make lots of money or do important things, or they're going to go work for the Justice Department or an NGO or different things like that. And those opportunities do exist. They are very competitive opportunities. And often they're not the things that are best suited. I, when I got out of law school, I, I was offered a job at a big firm in DC. And on the elevator to the job interview, I ran into some associates with giant bags of peanut M&Ms. And I was like, what are those for? And they're like, well, to keep us awake tomorrow night and the next night. And this was a Friday. And I just, I could not see myself working seven days a week you know, 14 hours a day or the kind of big firm thing. And so I took a job paying less than half as much money, but that immediately put me in the courtroom doing civil work. And, you know, I fit naturally and I liked it very much. And I got to try a, a week-long medical malpractice trial my first year, which was, I think, a mistake on my boss's part, but it had a good outcome. But, you know, Traditional measures, I shouldn't have done what I did. I should have taken the money and 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 yet I'm a much happier person and I've been able to employ myself for 42 years doing this. And and I just kind of one of those things that it's hard to see sometimes when you're in the super competitive law school world or medical school or whatever your field. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was going to ask you what drew you uh, to the plaintiff's bar? Just what this firm did, that basically it was a, an insurance defense firm, small firm, and one of the partners left and two associates left. And so it was me and the boss, and I won't name the boss. And the boss was like, oh, we need other people. So I immediately hired my law school roommate from the University of North Carolina, Robin Bernstein, now in Sweden. Shout out to Robin, who listens to the show. And then another good friend of mine who became a judge on the DC comp board and, and, and for years, Jeff Russell, who's also been on the program. So I got to hire two incredibly close friends as associates. And whenever we see each other, which is every year or two, 
Uh, we talk about sort of the magical times from when we were young lawyers and we were doing all this stuff and kind of our perception, how irresponsible it was of our boss to let us try cases at that stage. But somehow it gives you some confidence and that you might not otherwise get. And so it wasn't a direction I perceived I was going to go. I was going to work for a First Amendment firm in Charlotte that represented the Charlotte News and Observer. And when they gave that job to a Duke University Law Review editor, then I was crushed. But I think it worked out better for me than I ended up back in Maryland. So unanticipated. So you, in looking through your history, you've had a number of interesting different jobs, as you pointed out, working with Lynn in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I wonder how your different positions have informed your legal philosophy and your legal process. I think that hopefully the broad experience that I have has helped me to have good judgment. I have an understanding that different experiences, different backgrounds, different perspectives inform the way a case may be shaped or the way people may act or what happened in a case. And so that broad experience from which I come, together with the, the lessons that my father taught me as a young girl growing up, you know, I would come to him with an opinion or a, a viewpoint about some person or some event. And he would ask me a few questions to which I didn't have the answer. And then he would say, Andrea, you should not form an opinion until you know all the facts. And then he would remind me in many cases also about the principle that people are innocent until proven guilty. And so I think the way all of that informs the way I approach cases is I don't start trying to apply the law to anything until I really truly understand the facts of the case. I will dig through the file and the transcripts and I ask my clerks to do that with me. And the first thing we have to do is understand the facts, understand what happened. Then, then we're ready, and only then, to apply the law to those facts. I mean, so, you sound like a very simple concept, but I think it- In your job, it's not core, simple. At its core, that is how all of that has, I think, shaped my perspective. So I don't think our audience really appreciates quite the process that you go through. And that is that you are on a court that people have a right to, to take an appeal to and, and to submit their briefs and make arguments. The Supreme Court is a, a court that has to accept through this process called certiorari cases and, and kind of not take them if they don't want to. But when you're steeping yourself and your law clerks are steeping themselves in the case, it's actually reviewing large quantities of written material. And I just wondered how you go about that. Do you just start and sit down and, and read all this stuff or how, what's the process? Well, I mean, I think different people have different processes, obviously. Okay. But for me, I start with the party's briefing because I want to see what the, what the lawyers are saying are the most important facts and what are the most important issues in the case. And so you have to start there. I think 
you know, it's only logical. And then from there, I just start reading. I read everything in the, I try to read everything in the record, record extract and often go beyond the, the record extract into the, dig into the record and just make sure that there aren't any questions that I have about ha- what happened from a procedural perspective in terms of the case. We have to look at some threshold issues that people aren't always aware of, like, do we really have jurisdiction over this appeal right now? You know, is it a final agency or court decision? You know, the things that we have to look at in addition to what the parties actually briefed. And we do most of that uh, work before oral argument. I would try to get that done because I look at oral argument as an opportunity to ask the lawyers to fill in anything that I couldn't find. And so lawyers, I always hope that they come to oral argument realizing that it's an opportunity to have this dialogue with the court and to find out if they have any questions. And so I think for those lawyers who come to our court with a goal, everything mapped out, but this is what I'm going to say, and I want to say all these things on oral argument, that's great, but don't be flustered or frustrated if we interject with a question, it takes, takes you off that planned argument to interject with our questions because we're trying to understand the case better. And that's a good thing. So be pleased. You know, when we ask questions, it's <laughs> not to try to trick anybody or trap anyone. or it, It's really genuinely to find out what we need to know to resolve the case. And so embrace the questions and look at it as an opportunity to have a dialogue with the court. I think many people, especially ones who are not regularly doing appellate advocacy, are sufficiently nervous and they've got everything planned out and they have their structure and their notes and they've practiced with their dog in the bathroom, you know, doing their argument. And then periodically questions come right from the start and and they're important questions, but I think sometimes the advocates' anxiety overwhelms their thought processes. And I wonder if you observe that sometimes. I do. I usually try to let people get a little bit of their argument out uh, before we ask a before I ask a question. Now, sometimes what happens is, you know, there may be a threshold issue that has to be decided. So for example, if a party has filed a motion to dismiss in the case, or we realize that maybe there isn't jurisdiction over this appeal. And so that may prompt a very, very early question at the start of a a oral argument too. I don't know that our audience appreciates that basically you're appealing from a final judgment. You know, there are things that occur in a case along the way, and there are instances where you can take kind of an interim appeal called an interlocutory appeal. But those instances are pretty rare. And there are times that people don't realize when they can and can't appeal. And I I gather that's what you're talking about. Right, exactly. What do you think of of oral advocacy? Do you think it's, I have asked this of pretty much everybody, have you been swayed by an oral argument? You know, you're leaning one way before based on the briefs and the record extract, and then you hear oral argument and you go the other way. Has Has that happened? It has, it has. Let me qualify one thing that you mentioned in your question. So- sure. Your question presumes that we've made a decision Fair. before we come to oral argument, right? right? And we don't always have that. We don't always have There are many cases where 
you know, you're still trying to resolve it. You're on the fence and you're just, a lot of cases are close. That's why good lawyers bring them, right? And so, especially in those cases, oral argument may make a big difference. I remember at the Maryland appellate court level, a number of issues are usually raised in, in an appeal, not just one. Sure. Which is what makes it somewhat different, as you pointed out earlier, from the um, Supreme Court cases. So maybe we have, you know, four or five issues figured out, but one is just really still troubling us. In many cases, oral argument has made the difference as how, you know, maybe not all the issues are resolved, but maybe one or two within a case. So um, I think they're very, very important. And when I hear people say, oh, it doesn't make a difference or argument, the judges have already made their decision. I, I, think, I think it's a fallacy to have that belief because we, we are not always decided and probably, probably mostly not. And, and another thing to consider is, you know, we haven't conferenced at that point. Um, we don't conference until after oral argument. So normally when we go to oral argument, we really don't know what the other judges' views are on a case. And so we still have to conference that case. And so oral argument can make it, you know, inform that conference too. And so it's, it's oral argument is, I think, very important. We're starting to run out of time. And one of the things I would comment just generally is you've done so many good things in your career. I mean, there's all kinds of good works on your resume and and that's to be applauded. But one of the things we talked about the other day was kind of increasing the size of the oral advocacy population, increasing the diversity and that sort of thing. And you mentioned to me an in of court, I think, that now is devoted to that. And I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. Sure, sure. I, I have to say I was Again, inspired way back with the opportunity to work with Governor Glenn Denning and his efforts to diversify the judiciary, and they were quite significant. Then when I became an appellate judge, I noticed, as did other people, that the diversity of the population that regularly argues appeals in our court was not so great. And when I um, talk about diversity, I don't mean just race or gender, but even, you know, it's just sort of like an insular group of people, right? So what we did, actually, the idea grew out of uh, uh, members of the Maryland State Bar Association Appellate Subcommittee. We were talking about how, what, could, what are something we can do to diversify the lawyers that, who practice before the appellate courts? And so we established an organizing committee to charter and in of court under the American Inns of Court Foundation. And so we um, established the Cole Davidson Inn of Court. It's named after Judge Harry A. Cole, who was the first African-American member of the Maryland of the Supreme Court of Maryland. You got it. <laughs> and Judge Rita C. Davidson, who was the first woman member of the Maryland Supreme Court. And the mission of the inn is to promote diversity, civility, ethics, and excellence in appellate legal advocacy. And we try to accomplish that by drawing from a diverse membership of judges and lawyers and legal educators and 
students who are interested in telepractice. So we promote interaction and collegiality among the members with an aim to transmit valuable legal professional skills and promote confidence among the young lawyers and sort of the inside tricks of the trade and just having someone getting for these young lawyers, getting to know the judges and um, senior members of the appellate bar so that they can reach out and talk to them with a question or some advice is so important. And that leads me back to sort of the organizing principle, everything in our discussion from my perspective, which is mentoring and mentorship. It's so important in our profession to mentor from my perspective now at my old age, my main goal is to mentor as many young lawyers as I possibly can to help them in their career. And, and I think that's really what that end of court is all about. Well, I think the concept of mentoring is wonderful, and it probably is a is a great final note to our show. I'd like to very much thank you, Judge Leahy, for appearing on Everyday Law today. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me as your guest, and thank you for for doing this program. I mean, it's so important to have programs like this to make the law accessible and understandable to people in the community, not just lawyers, but our citizens. It's so important for them to understand how our legal system works so that they can get a better and fairer, I guess, experience when, when, when and if they ever have to be in court. I think there's a lot of people who think it's rigged, you know, against them that they don't have the opportunities. And I do like to think that our numerous guests across the last six years have kind of informed the opposite opinion of things. And and I'm very grateful to you and the others who've appeared. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.